Welcome to The Vanderpoint. Please join your hosts, Jessica Vanderkoy and Rachel Pointer, as they challenge each other and have critical conversations about disrupting and dismantling the systems that fuel human trafficking. My name is Rachel Pointer. I use she, hers pronouns, um, and I am one of the co-hosts on The Vanderpoint. Thank you for being here. Um, Jessica? Thank you, Rachel. Aubrey, thank you for being here. I also am really excited. Um, One of the things we committed to in this podcast set up um, in making it so conversational was to look at our own personal growth. Uh, We recognize that as hosts, we are also white women um, and in our careers have done things wrong, have caused harm, have, um, haven't been reflective and, and action oriented as fast as we could have been or should have been in some circles. And so part of this Um, When we select people to be part of this conversation, it's, uh, it's also to contribute to our own growth. Um, And we always um, kind of bring this up sort of in each episode, knowing that it is in, although being uncomfortable is part of the strategy that um, kind of normalizing being uncomfortable and uh, Rachel and I modeling that along the way as we learn and grow as uh, white women doing this work. Um, so, Aubrey, I am super excited to have you here. Um, I we have known each other a couple of years now, and I in the in that time have learned so much from you. Whether you knew you were teaching me or not, whether I knew I was being taught or not. Well, hi everyone. I am Aubrey Dinslagi. I use they them pronouns. Um, trying to figure out how I want to introduce myself, so I'll talk about the things that I'm very passionate about. So. I am non-binary, um, so I do tons of trans advocacy and education in my personal life and in my workspaces. Um, I am a dog parent. I spend lots of size of time outside with my dog. I have way too many plants in my apartment that I moved into only five months ago, and <laughs> um, I work with um, trafficking victims that are young folks. Um, and I've been doing that work for about three to four years now. Aubrey, I'm, I'm really, really, really glad you're in this space with us today. And I've been looking forward to this conversation since we laid it out and said, let's ask Aubrey. So <laughs> thank you for being here. Thank you for agreeing to um, have this conversation and, and enter into what can be a fairly uncomfortable conversation for us to be having. So thank you for being here. I think there's a quote, something like the best form of flattery is something like, anyway, I quote you all the time. When I hear things, I, um, I go, oh yeah. <laughs> so you had given me an example one time when I was asking questions about pronouns and, and things like that. And wasn't, I don't know, just like my brain, it was like, there's this fence in your brain and you're trying to work it out and do it right. And then there's anxiety about doing it right and then you fuck it up and then you don't know what to do to to repair it mm-hmm. and um you um absolutely gave me that space to repair it and now I am um hyper achieving at at um <laughs> at pronouns and making sure that um I've taken it a step further and addressing it with other people so I think you had given me the example one time and you're like okay so it's not weird actually if someone leaves their purse or their item and you gave me this whole example in this story and I was like yeah "Yeah, okay so I absolutely repeat that story and that example and I think of you when I do it so I am um 
forever grateful for, for all the things that you've contributed um, to my life and learning over the last couple of years. Love that. I love that. And I still use that example constantly to this day when people are like, they, them is plural. I'm like, no, it's not. You use it all the time. You just don't realize it. Yeah. Love it. So, um, yeah. So thank you. And um, Rachel, thank you for the introduction as the co-host of Vanderpoint podcast with you. It's always a pleasure to be here to be having this conversation. And I just have to pause you. This is like literally okay. the most formal introduction we've ever done. I'm proud of you. Well, I just followed, I just followed. I was like, oh shit, Rachel's getting formal. Oh God. <laughs> I was, I'm like, I was not that formal. However, I am here to make people uncomfortable. And it makes me really happy that that is uh, a cornerstone to your entire podcast, because I feel like my whole existence is making people uncomfortable And sometimes my whole goal in a room is to make white people uncomfortable, especially white women and, of course, white men. But I I walk into spaces full of white people and I'm like, how can I make you all feel really uncomfortable? Uh, Because I'm going to anyway, so I might as well capitalize on it. Push, push my gay agenda along with it. Oh, do you have a gay agenda? I feel like I lost mine. (laughs) You know, it evolves, but it's always anti-capitalist. I love it. And that, you know, it it evolves, of course. (laughs) Today's episode really is looking, taking a closer look at systems of oppression, um, well-designed, well-protected policies, well-funded um, systems rooted in white supremacy and um, a white male or patriarchal society that um, that we know actually strengthens and perpetuates the crime of trafficking. Part of the point of the co- of our podcast was really to to expose some of these things as opposed to only, and so I don't want to minimize the importance of it, only kind of putting money and resources and time into responding to the needs of people after they've been victimized or exploited, but how do we ever get ourselves out of this, right? We know we can't legislate ourselves out of this. We know we can't um, fundraise ourselves out of this. Um, we know- We can't arrest um, our way out of it either. We can't arrest, right, exactly. And so- for those listeners who are interested truly in ending the crime of trafficking, truly of having certain disproportionate groups of people, right, um, of certain demographics great, more greatly impacted by this, um, and that we have to start looking at what in our system actually creates the crime, um, strengthens the crime, and quite honestly, in my opinion, I think gives permission a bit for the the crime. So when we start with, you know, the discussion, and I I know this is one of your favorite things to talk about, um, or at least work to dismantle on the the patriarchy, if you will, um, and looking at kind of a foundation of that. um, I had read something somewhere that really resonated with me that the patriarchy existing relies on the dominance of the uh, dominating groups of people who are not the leader being white men, but it also requires the dominance of each other, meaning white men with one another. Mm -hmm. And it's that those two things at play, actually, when we break it down on how trafficking works, is how we get to a very strong, protected, um, endorsed, policy protected, funded 
system of trafficking. So that's why we had you here today. We think it's important to kind of expose this, talk about it, be critical of it, and and hopefully create some solutions, have some some conversations that start to get groups of people thinking about prevention differently and thinking about the power and dismantling. I'm so excited to talk about this because anti-trafficking and anti-exploitation work is not something that I ever thought would be a huge point in my life until I realized how much it was wrapped up in all of the other things that I care about. And right, that young Black trans girls are much more likely to experience trafficking and having to do survival sex work at 16, 17 years old, you know, directly impacts, you know, my trans family, my trans community. I didn't realize that trafficking work was going to be, you know, queer and trans advocacy work and anti-capitalism work and anti-racism work. I didn't understand that when I first got into this work. And it's all so wrapped up in each other that without dismantling white supremacy, you're not going to even touch the exploitation and, and sex trafficking that exists in the United States, especially in the globe, right? We're not even talking about global trafficking and what it looks like as a multi-billion dollar industry globally. It's just like, how do we have so many trafficking victims here in Omaha? But look at the segregation that we have. Look at housing disparities. Look at our education system. Look at the fact that we're about to build a prison for children. And then we wonder how there's trafficking victims in Mm -hmm. Omaha. You're priming our communities to be trafficked when you have police in in schools and you're building more jails and (laughs) no mental health services and so on and so forth right what pieces of the um so when we think about white supremacy right Mm. the roots of it what it is if you were to define it right and then um, identify how it actually serves as a feeder to this crime, not breaking it down to a place where if someone's never heard the term white supremacy, because if they have, they probably aren't on this podcast. But, <laughs> right. Um, but really, I think challenging the uh, understanding of white supremacy, because I think that if I think there's a lot of people who like get it, but they don't really. And now we're asking them to apply it to a system of exploitation, right? And how, if you care about who's being exploited and you care about the crime, how can we make the connection for people? Where's, where is that? How would you describe that? I would describe white supremacy as the foundation of Western civilization, the foundation of the United States and our representative democracy that barely exists anymore, that <laughs> perpetuates violence to every community that is not cis straight white property owning men, right? So who the founding fathers decided you get to vote in the first election of the United States presidency, right? That is white supremacy. And our systems only benefit those people. No matter how many laws that we have created, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, no matter women's suffrage, no matter any law that we create, our foundation of white supremacy that benefits land-owning cis-straight white men, most of which were Christian and slave-owning, we haven't changed anything fundamentally about that system. It dominates every aspect of our lives. 
So you, we can't look at exploitation without looking at white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Even our nonprofit systems, of course, our nonprofits are embedded so deeply in white supremacy, mm-hmm. especially when we look at, I mean, what did nonprofits start from? They really started from religion, Christian missions, Christian-based organizations, which if we're talking about patriarchy and white supremacy, we're talking about Christianity. That's really the foundation of non- nonprofits as well. And it's completely embedded white supremacy is and patriarchy is, which is how we know our outcomes for our nonprofits are all just bullshit. Mm. It's all just getting more money to continue serving, but not actually ever addressing the issues because white supremacy doesn't actually allow us to address any of our issues within this system. Mm-hmm. There is no form within white supremacy. How does it contribute to trafficking? How do they inter interconnect, do you think? Goodness. I mean, well, if we look at the data of the folks who have experienced trafficking, most of which have been involved in some system, right? Juvenile justice, um, foster care, all of those systems are embedded in patriarchy and white supremacy and perpetuate violence. And they prime people because they're controlling. It's power and control in those systems, right? Like what does our juvenile justice system teach teens? Mm-hmm. That they have to listen to authority constantly. Mm-hmm. What does our school system teach kids, right? We prime people for that power and control in our workplaces because that's what you have to do to exist within capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Is to be okay with being exploited all the fucking time. Mm-hmm. Especially if you exist in a marginalized community or in an impacted community, right? So you're priming people to be exploited by just capitalism existing. And then because capitalism doesn't exist without exploitation. So then you add patriar- patriarchy onto it and gender-based violence. And you have, you know, women and girls, gay men and trans women. Mm-hmm really likely to be victimized and exploited because we're going to be exploited anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and you're and you're going to be okay with that in a lot of ways, right? Because yeah. you, because you've been set up to accept exploitation as the norm. Yes. And as Jessica will say forever and I will pr- repeat for the rest of my life, we learn how to be in relationships by being in relationships. <laughs> and <laughs> if that is not the title of your memoir, I don't know that is going to be like I don't know um but yeah we we're primed for those relationships to be exploitive Uh we and we capitalism is such an individualistic society that we don't have the kind of community care that we need to protect young people especially and protect people in impacted communities from this exploitation. We don't have that community mm-hmm. care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any, um, in your work, have you seen times where this was kind of the, oh, you know, so what What I hear you saying is that there's power and control in the systems that we've built, right? And there's power and control within the trafficking piece. But there's also always a commodity in capitalism, and there's always a commodity in trafficking. And then our solutions and the way we interact are always imbalanced. They're always catered to the definition, the default of white men. Um, And this was one of the conversations I'd had with Rachel, speaking of learning from from all of you. I remember 
um, I had written a proposal for something and had Rachel read it. And she's like, I don't like the word professional. And I was like, (laughs) and we had this this conversation and I, I just, with my students, they wrote it somewhere. And I said, okay, so here's the thing. Who defined, who defined professionalism? I nearly quoted Rachel Pointer in this interaction. Um, but I digress, but I, um, so do you get what I'm, As you, are you picking up what I'm down? that's what makes it fun, Rachel. I know it's true. <laughs> you don't want me to be rehearsed. I'll flutter all over my words. I'll, it'll be bad. <laughs> yes. So, okay. So really I go into every interaction in my work with my clients, trying to strip down this idea that I'm a professional and that I'm an authority. I have never been 20 years old, homeless, and doing sex work to survive. I ne- I have never. So the experiences that the folks that I'm working with have, the survival skills that they have, are unreal to me. I cannot comprehend it. It is irresponsible and arrogant to go into an interaction with a young person who is homeless and in survival and think that I know what they need. Unreal. Unreal. They probably need a meal, Mm -hmm. right? Food. I can make the assumption that they could probably use a meal. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to get them a meal and then let them tell me what it is that they actually need and then try to navigate the system that I work within to get that for them. Mm-hmm. which is the most infuriating part of my job <laughs> to navigate within these nonprofits when people usually just need money and a place to live. Mm-hmm. And a relationship mm-hmm. where you can practice um, being authentic. You can practice building trust, you know, that it's, we have, when you, you learn how to be in relationships by being in relationships and if they've all been shitty and you're trying to rework that template, like it is a service. It is a, an intervention, right? If we need to use, you know, outcome language and nonprofit language, it is an actual (laughs) intervention to engage in a healthy reciprocal relationship with a person who is going to, who is coming to you to walk alongside you to get what is needed. And I, I, you know, I wish, gosh, I, I feel like that model could be used anywhere and everywhere not getting stuck on, I think you bring up an interesting point that also mirrors kind of the, the white supremacy piece with the, with the power and control within the relationship, how we mirror that by me being the expert in the driver's seat, you know, the, it's like the helper and the healthy. Yeah. Um, and um, that, that system of power and control, whether you in, intentionally create it or not is simply there. It's unspoken. I'm the one with the resources I'm the one with the knowledge. I'm the one who's going to get to say yay or nay. And you're going to just- I'm the one who's going to fix you. Oh, and then I'm white. (laughs) And then I'm white. And then they're like, okay. So also probably most of my clients assume I'm a white woman, right? So you're going to come into an uh, interaction with me being like, oh, well, here's another fucking white lady who's Mm going to tell me what I need to do. Mm -hmm. How many meetings I need to show up to so that I can get some money, so that I can get some food and a roof over my head. Fucking Mm -hmm. awesome. Right? White lady. (laughs) Thanks. Can't wait. I'm sure that's how they feel when they meet me, Mm -hmm. which is fair. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Absolutely. Yesterday I had an interaction with a client where I was like, is it okay if I order you an Uber 
to get back to your place instead of me driving them because it was 4.15 and I didn't feel like driving them. And I said, you can say no because I know that they don't like to take Ubers. And they go, okay, then no. And I was like, awesome. I will drive you. And I was like, if you cannot say no to me, who can you say no to? 100%. And they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, there's no consequences with me. If you tell me that makes me uncomfortable, no. Can you take me home? Absolutely, I will do that. Mm -hmm. So if it's kind of hard for you to set boundaries with people or say no to people, practice with me because there's, I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get upset. There are no consequences. Practice with me. Hopefully, right, that starts a foundation. Hopefully, mm-hmm. she can start to say no to me. Mm-hmm. When my clients say no to me, I'm pumped, right? I'm like, okay, <laughs> awesome. They trust me, right? It does take a lot of trust to say no to somebody. It really does. And I don't think we think about that hardly ever. We definitely don't talk about it hardly ever. Mm-hmm. But I honestly feel like that that inability almost to say no is rooted in white supremacy and patriarchal structures like we are we are groomed from before birth to just accept not question accept it accept it accept it so no is a foreign foreign word and it's it's one of the reasons i think and you know if this takes us somewhere it can take us somewhere but it's one of the reasons i think why we have such a hard time getting folks specific folks on board with the conversation of consent because if if i mean yes is not yes if no is not an like an option to say no we don't have to talk about consent because you can't say no mm-hmm so we don't even, that's not even a conversation. I think, I really, really believe that it is one of the main reasons why we can't get specific folks on board with the conversation that consent must be included in anti-trafficking, in healthy relationship conversations, in in anything anti-oppression based, in anything with that starts with the word healthy, consent must be part of that conversation and I really really believe that's rooted in white supremacy and patriarchal structures Mm -hmm. I mean being socialized as women yes and then adding the intersections of being a person of color being a black woman Mm -hmm. the intergenerational trauma of not being able to say no to white people Mm -hmm. white women white men absolutely embedded in your psyche it's so uncomfortable because it also causes conflict and we are especially as white people meant to avoid conflict, especially like any sort of racial discomfort, Mm -hmm. right? We're never supposed to call out people for saying uncomfortable racist things or microaggressions. We, we were meant to keep quiet in those spaces. Just like men are meant to keep quiet in the spaces of like locker room talk and Mm -hmm. whatever other bullshit euphemism you want to use to perpetuate rape culture right right conflict is conflict is so embedded in the u.s structure but it's like state sanctioned conflict it's not (laughs) interpersonal conflict that we're supposed to be okay with like it's fine if we're bombing brown kids in the middle east right that's totally okay. Violence in that way is fine. Conflict is okay. We've learned to accept that. 
interpersonal conflict and that, that kind of discomfort, which is why the basis of this show is making people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because this is conflict for some people to have these conversations about consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And for some of us, it's it's downright dangerous to have some of these conversations. And if I can challenge this within myself and I start to challenge you, in that converse that 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 means that we're moving to another level and if we can move to that level then we can push on the system if we push on the system the whole thing implodes and the poor white man what what will he do mm-hmm. well nothing happens until people are uncomfortable i mean even if you look at you know weight loss a lot of people you know if you're overweight and and you know, you, people don't choose to actually necessarily do something until their knees hurt or their doctor says, Hey, your life might be shortened. Oh shit. I'm uncomfortable. I better start watching what I'm doing. Right. Look at relationships, marriages, friendships, people just kind of go along and sort of accept what is until something's uncomfortable. Right. And then you say, Whoa, wait a second. We got a problem. I'm uncomfortable. Maybe we have to work on some of these things. And Um, But really, most people are not motivated to do anything until they're uncomfortable. But if you look at the talk about capitalism and the the funding that goes into helping people not be uncomfortable. Right. And which is part of what pisses me off about the kind of the self-care takeover. Don't get me started on self-care. So (laughs) I have changed it to caring for self. Um, because it means something different to me than this sort of robbed term of self-care that actually just feeds into, I mean, a different episode, but dear God, um, it's a, um, it's still exploitation though. Right. Right. Take care of yourself in your 30 minutes of time that you don't have to worry about all the labor you're doing, especially women who might be parenting and who might have to work two jobs. Make sure you're also taking care of yourself so you don't get too burnt out in this system that we've created to literally burn you out on purpose so that you can't fight back against the bullshit that we've designed. Right. And then gaslight you when you are burnt out because you didn't do self-care good enough. Right. (laughs) Did I tell you about self-care? If you had been taking care of yourself along the way, you wouldn't be burned out right now. So basically, you're not doing it right. Right. Failure. Thank you. Except for where you're like, uh pushing over the system bowling it down burning the whole fucking thing to the ground is an act of self-care thank you very much thank you absolutely (laughs) yeah well and self-care is important it's the term self-care and how it's been coined as being something to spend money on Mm -hmm. is the way that you do it right you get pedicures or you know maybe you take the day off but um it's not about putting boundaries on your time. It's not about putting boundaries on, on what you see and what you hear. It's not about energy to dismantle shit that isn't working, um, to be authentically yourself, to have time to get mammograms and your oil changed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's not what, what we're talking about, you know, people. Well, so, and, and what if we weren't actually focused? focusing on an individualistic, capitalistic, white supremacist version of self-care and we were looking at community care? Right. What if we said, what are you doing to help your community, to support mm-hmm. your community? Because that's not, but not in a charity, like Christian way, in right. a mutual aid, 
actual support for your community because then that actually means support for you, Mm -hmm. right? It's not about just what Mm -hmm. you can give to your community. It's about how can you create that community? What if we focus on community care instead of self-care that's like so individualistic and capitalistic? Thank you for witnessing today's conversation on The Vanderpoint. Jessica and Rachel hope you will join them next time as they continue engaging in this critical work.